Well, we have a great treat this morning. We have Lee Eric Fesco here preaching to us. Lee Eric Fesco is the Director of Discipleship at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville. Uh, Lee Eric is licensed in our presbytery to preach the gospel, and we are excited to have him here with us this morning. Come on up, Eric. Good morning, and Happy New Year. Again, as uh, Mitchell said, I am Lyric Fesco. I'm the Director of Discipleship at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville. It's a real treat to be with you here this morning. And again, I want to thank Pastor Carter for giving me this opportunity to open God's Word with you. In fact, uh, this is an interesting dynamic, I think. You all are part of the Presbyterian Church in America, and I am from a, a church that is part of the Presbyterian Church in America as well. In fact, our churches are part of the same presbytery. This is how I know your pastor. So our churches are part of the same presbytery, the same body, yet most of us have never met. Most of the people at my church have probably met, not met most of the people at this church, yet we remain part of the same body, the body of Christ. In fact, this is true for most all of us who call ourselves Christians. We are part of the same body, yet most have never even met yet. When we meet as fellow believers, it's a foretaste. It's a foretaste of what awaits us. That thought provides us with a great backdrop to consider as we dive into our passage today, which comes from Colossians 1, 24 through 2, verse 5. Pray with me as we go to the text this morning. Father, this morning we pray that you would open our eyes and our ears to your word. We pray that the Holy Spirit would help us to understand this passage and, and the scriptures, your holy word, and that your holy word would be the loudest voice here today and the only voice that we hear. We thank you for your son, the word made flesh, who gives us life and right standing before you by his blood, Set us aside for your work. May, may this word today change us so that we leave here ready to do your kingdom work. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. If you haven't already, go ahead and open your Bibles to Colossians 1.24. We'll read Colossians 1.24 through chapter 2, verse 5. Hear God's word. Starting again in one, uh, one, Colossians 1.24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, 
to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. The word of the Lord. Once again, you and I, by and large, we have never met, yet we are part of the same body. The same can be said about Paul and his relationship with the church at Colossae. At the time of this writing, and it's believed even for the rest of his life, Paul never visited this church in person. Yet he writes this letter to them. It's believed that the church was started by a man named Epaphras, who may have become a Christian during a visit to, to Ephesus where Paul was. He was saved, and then Epaphras went back to Colossae and, and started the church there. So Epaphras later visited Paul again and told him of this false teaching that was circulating around the church at Colossae. Though we're not precisely sure what the false teaching was, it prompted Paul to write this letter to the church. And again, having never met any of these people, yet Paul's affection for them is so apparent. These are, in a sense, his grandchildren. And so it's, it's in the passage that, that we, we just read where, where Paul gets into his concern. He starts addressing the matter of the false teaching that's circulating, and it carries with it a different tone than, say, his letter to the Galatians. In Galatians, he's addressing a, a false teacher, teaching as well, too. And in Galatians, you can tell, as he, right, from the, right from the get-go, he's mad. He's mad. You might say that uh, it's like the tone of a parent who's yelling at their child who's about to run into a busy intersection or a busy street. Stop! So in this letter, though, Paul is being a bit more systematic. He's building a case. He, he's pouring a foundation, as it were. And again, we don't know the precise nature of the false teaching, but it's believed, based on some of the things that he says in, in this letter and even in our passage today, that perhaps there were some of those who thought, well, a lot of themselves. They were preaching the idea that, well, maybe I'm just a little bit more spiritual than you are. Uh, maybe I have insight into things in this new covenant that, that you don't quite have insight to yet. And, and maybe, just maybe, you can reach the point where I am. Maybe one day you can attain that, obtain that. And in just the, the, the short few verses that we read, there are numerous themes to draw out that he addresses in, in such a mindset. But I want to focus on, on just three of those things. Three of the things that he gives us. These are, these are going to be our headings today for those of you taking notes uh, physically or mentally. These are straight from the text, things that Paul says that we want, to, we want to pick apart a bit. And all these points should steer us to the fact that, that this new covenant, which, which Christ himself inaugurated, isn't a covenant for the elite. It's not a covenant for, for the super spiritual. And it's not a covenant for people in a certain league. It's not for those people. And if it's not for those people, then who is it for? That's what we hope to figure out today through each of these phrases that Paul says. The first being filling up what is lacking. Filling up what is lacking. That's the first one. He says that in verse 24. The next phrase or word in this case is the word mystery. What mystery? He uses the word mystery in verse 26 and 27 in chapter 1, and then again in verse 2 of chapter 2. So mystery is our second heading. 
And third, we want to talk about glorious riches. The glorious riches that Paul mentions in verse 27 of chapter 1, verse 2 of chapter 2, and then similarly, he uses the word treasure in verse 3. So glorious riches is our third heading, filling up what is lacking, mystery, and glorious riches. Those are the three phrases we're going to pick apart today. So first, filling up what is lacking. That's a curious phrase, and that make you, might make you want to stop right in your tracks when you read it. Again, verse 24, it says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body. That is the church. Now, wait a minute. What's Paul saying? How could Christ's afflictions, his sufferings, how could it be lacking in any way, shape, or form? What does Paul think, that he can supplement what Christ has done? My wife and I have a 15-year-old and a 16-year-old, and what that means is that we have people in our home learning to drive vehicles. And thankfully, they seem to have a pretty good handle on things, though, as with every other 15- and 16-year-old, as I said, they are new at it. They're new. And so the first few times you get behind the wheel, I even remember this when I was learning to drive, you've, you've got to get a feel for how the vehicle operates. You can read about how a car works. You can even have a deep knowledge and understanding of how an internal combustion engine works and all the inner workings of the vehicle, but that knowledge really does you little good when it comes to learning how to operate the vehicle. And one of the first things that you have to learn when you're driving is that Follow what I'm saying here. The car will go in the direction in which you point it, okay? If you turn the wheel to the right, the car will go to the right. If you turn the car to the left, the car will go to the left, all right? Now, that seems like a fairly obvious point. And again, intuitively, you understand that before you ever get behind the wheel of a car, but negotiating right and left hand turns takes feel when you're combining those turns with an accelerator. So discovers the 15 and 16 year olds are getting behind the wheel for the first time. And again, this is even difficult to explain to you right now because it's more feel than anything else. Let's just say you're gonna make a right turn. You turn the wheel to the right and then you step on the gas, right? You start going and when do you, when do you stop turning that wheel, right? You see, you don't, you don't point your tires straight once your car is, is pointed in the direction you want it to go. You have to gradually stop turning the wheel as your car nears the direction you want it to ultimately go. You know how when you turn and the, and the wheel just kind of slides back through your hand? You know that feeling? That's, that's what I'm talking about. It, it's hard to explain with words. And some of you right now might even be thinking, that's not how I drive at all. I don't know what he's talking about, right? And this, this is the struggle with teaching someone how to drive. I, I can't just tell you, th though that is part of the process. I have to show you. And then it's not even enough for me to show you. You have to do it too. For you to really learn how to drive, all the words in the world won't get you there. I have to show and you have to partake in the exercise of driving. And I use this illustration for two reasons. Paul could simply tell us about the sufferings of Christ. For that matter, Jesus could have just told Paul about the sufferings of Christ, but instead he told him he would partake in the sufferings of Christ. 
When we read about Paul's conversion in Acts, there was a disciple, not one of the 12, but another named Ananias. And the Lord told Ananias to go seek out Saul of Tarsus, Saul being Paul's Jewish name. So seek out Saul and restore his sight as he had been blinded on the road to Damascus when he was converted. And Ananias says in not so few words, what? What? Lord, are you sure? Do you know all the evil that he has done and all the suffering he has caused your people? And the Lord tells him, Acts 9, 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And indeed, this is what Paul discovered from the moment he was converted. To be a follower of Christ is to be one who partakes in the sufferings of Christ. In the same way that my son learns to drive a car, they learn the car goes where the steering wheel is pointed, so too the body goes where the head goes. The body moves in the direction the head tells it to move. Christ is the head of the church, and the church is the body of Christ. If the head suffers, the body suffers along with it. Have you ever had a toothache? It's, it's miserable. A toothache is miserable. It's an ache that originates in your, in your head, but it can take the whole body down. It's miserable. This is something else that Paul learned the moment he was converted. When he encountered the Lord as he was knocked off his feet, he fell to the ground. He heard the voice of the Lord say, Acts 9, verse 4, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, why are you persecuting me? To this point in Saul's career as a persecutor, he was only persecuting the church. He'd never done a thing to Jesus himself, right? No, Jesus sees it differently. To persecute the church is to persecute Jesus himself. To persecute the church is to persecute the body of Christ. You see, Paul learned that day not only that Christ suffered in his people, but also that he himself, who had made others to suffer for Christ's sake, he would also have to suffer much for Jesus. So when Paul says filling up what is lacking, it's not that Christ's suffering on the cross was in any way deficient. When Christ cried out, it is finished, he meant it. Atonement for sin had been made, and there was nothing further needed insofar as making us right before God the Father. God's justice was satisfied fully and completely. But what remains unfinished, what remains lacking, is our completion of being made holy of being made to be like Christ. Jesus suffered. We are being made to be like Jesus. We too will know suffering if we're being molded into the image of Christ. The church is his body. It is the body of Christ in which he dwells, lives, and therefore also suffers. Do you know suffering? Do you know suffering? I, I hope you're not in a season of, of suffering right now, but if you are, this is your consolation. Your suffering is not in vain. Your suffering isn't simply a byproduct of a fallen world. You, you suffer, and while you do, you're being conformed to the likeness of Christ, the suffering servant that, that the prophet Isaiah spoke of. But, okay, why, why suffering? Why do I have to suffer to be conformed to the likeness of Christ? Why couldn't it have been something else like, like eating good food? Why, why can't eating good food conform me to the likeness of Christ? Wouldn't that be great? And the quick answer to that is because of sin. 
A sin against a holy God is a deed that must be paid for and the payment must be reflective of the act committed. So to satisfy God's perfect scales of justice as it required, it required a sacrifice. And a sacrifice is costly. And Jesus willingly sacrificed himself to satisfy that cost. And yes, he could have just told us about it. But to really understand, to really begin to understand and be likened unto him, we have to taste the bitter pill that is suffering. So who is this new covenant for? Who is Christianity for? Is it for the elite? Is it for the super religious? No, Paul is telling us here that Christianity is for among others, the sufferer. It's for the sufferer. Who is Christianity for? for? For those who have reached the level of spirituality that the rest of us can't seem to reach? No. Paul continues to tell us, and along with suffering, he uses the word mystery. Mystery. My wife and I, her name is Tracy, she wasn't able to join me today as she and my older son had commitments to fulfill it at our church. But, but two months ago, exactly to the day, my wife and I celebrated our, our 20th year of marriage. And after 20 years of marriage, I find myself, uh, myself still fishing for compliments of, of different kinds. So for example, I enjoy cooking on the grill, as I'm sure many of you do as well. So I'll often try new things, new recipes, new ways of, of smoking various meats and, and vegetables. And, and when we, we try something for the first time, we'll put it on the table and I'll ask her, what do you think? Do you like it? Now, what I'm looking for is, yes, this is amazing. But sometimes I'll get something like, Hmm, it's interesting. You see, interesting can go either way, but it's not usually a compliment in this context. That's an interesting documentary, compliment. That's an interesting brisket, not a compliment. Why did you use the word interesting? Word choice matters especially when words have multiple meanings. If I ask my wife, hey, how do I look? If she says fine, I want to know what she means by fine. The word changes based on inflection. The same word can carry multiple meanings. What do you mean fine? Fine like a precious stone or fine as in so-so, right? Word choice matters. It matters. So when Paul uses the word mystery, we might ask the question, why did you use the word mystery, Paul? What do you mean by mystery? Often we'll, we'll read the Bible and we'll assume that word choice is, is innocuous. Well, that, that was just what he was thinking about in the moment, but there are multiple reasons why Paul might have used the word mystery here. This could have been in direct response to the false teachers in the midst of the church at, at Colossae who, who might have been insisting that some are closer to God than others and, and the how and the why are just a mystery. So Paul responds with, let me tell you something about mystery. Sometimes, in fact, oftentimes, the writers of the New Testament will use words because of their significance in the Old Testament. Again, it's hard to get into the head of Paul, but, but he did this so often where he would borrow a word from the Old Testament and complete the imagery in the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When Paul talked about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, that, that wasn't random. He wasn't just thinking, oh, this will make a good illustration. Try and read through the book of Isaiah and try not to trip over how many times fruit imagery is used, particularly with that of grapes and vineyards. His use of fruit is not by accident. What about the word mystery? The book of Daniel is fascinating to me uh, because it's written in a couple of different genres as they refer to it. It has elements of historical narrative, 
and elements of apocalyptic writing, which isn't too common in the Bible. There are elements of it in Daniel and, and a little bit in Ezekiel and, of course, in Revelation. In fact, the book of Daniel gives us insight on how we should read the book of Revelation because of its apocalyptic nature. Having said that, there's an account in the book of Daniel, chapter 2, where King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Perhaps you're familiar with this passage in the dream. In the Bible, dreams are symbolic. And none of the king's interpreters can shed any light on the meaning of this dream, which infuriates the king. And since none of his wise men can interpret his dream, we're told he has those men destroyed. But Daniel, by the mercy of God, was able to provide an interpretation to the dream. We're told, Daniel 2.19, Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel, Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And there's that word. And that word mystery is used seven more times in that chapter, including verses 29 and 30, where Daniel says, And he who reveals mysteries, that's God, made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me. The mystery has been revealed to me. This sounds a little bit like what Paul is saying here. In other words, something once hidden is now revealed. Something once secret is now made known. Something once obscured is now plainly seen. And Daniel is the instrument which God has used to make this mystery known. At least to me, it's really interesting what Daniel revealed. You see, really quickly, the, the king's dream was about a giant statue. A giant statue whose head was made of gold, its chest of arms and, and, and made of silver, uh, its chest and arms and made, made of silver, its middle and, and thighs made of bronze, its legs made of iron, uh, and feet partly of iron and partly of clay. But a stone, as Daniel says, a, that was cut by no human hand, struck the statue and broke it to pieces. And Daniel tells exactly what that dream means. The interpretation is given to him by the Lord. The, the top section of the statue represents the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar, his kingdom of Babylon. And each of the subsequent sections of the statue represent the kingdoms that would follow Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire, and the Greek Empire, then of course the Roman Empire. But the stone that was cut out by no human hand, which broke the statue into pieces, that's the kingdom of the Lord. This is Daniel 2.44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. This was the mystery. A mystery that was once concealed, but now revealed by the Lord's servant, Daniel. Daniel was the agent which made the mystery known to the king. He, by the mercy of the Lord, gave that which was concealed meaning and clarity. He detailed the kingdom that would have no end, and shall stand forever. So now Paul in Colossians begins speaking about mystery. And like Daniel, Paul reveals the once concealed, now revealed meaning. What is the mystery? He says this in verse 26 and 27 in our reading today. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The kingdom that Daniel spoke of hundreds of years before, Paul 
wrote these words, a kingdom with no end, a kingdom with no end that would stand forever, what would that kingdom be? How, how big of an army would that have to be? The kingdom that Daniel spoke about is, is the army of the saints, those believers who hold fast to the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And this kingdom would rule not from castles, not from a military stronghold, but this kingdom would rule from the hearts of all believers, Christ in you. But here's the best part of the mystery. This kingdom with no end, this kingdom that stands forever, it's not made up of, of the Israelites who, who once were called God's chosen. No, the kingdom of Israel was only a shadow of what was to come. The kingdom with no end is comprised of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. This kingdom wouldn't be confined to a sliver of land in the Middle East. No, it would reach the ends of the earth. The ends of the earth, which include the people sitting in the pews of Trinity Presbyterian Church on North Rutherford Boulevard, Murfreesboro, Tennessee. This mystery, this is the mystery once, revealed, once concealed, now revealed. Who is this gospel for? Is the gospel of Jesus for the elite? Is it for, for those? Is, it, is, it, is the gospel of Jesus Christ for the, for the super spiritual that, that hold a mystery that hasn't been made known? Unequivocally, no. The gospel of Jesus is for you as you are right now. You don't have to lather up a layer of righteousness. You don't have to educate yourself and bring your, yourself up to speed before you approach the Lord Jesus. Your only requirement is need, a need of a Savior. Look, look how Paul ends this thought. Look, look where his emphasis lies in verse 28 and 29. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Who is it, Paul? You're not being clear. Just some people? No, everyone, the Jew and the Gentile. And this is what Paul is laboring to tell the church, as if he's saying, this is my whole reason for being alive. To, to, to make sure you, people I've never even met, to make sure you know who you are in Christ. You are the mystery revealed. Christ in you, the kingdom without end. Now, we tie these two pieces together. Our first point with the second point. We tie the suffering together with the mystery, and, and we get a taste of the glorious riches. This is our third and final point. As you recall, our, our scripture reading today opened with, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. I, I don't know what you think about when you hear the word suffering. Whatever it is, it, it's probably not pleasant. Suffering has such a negative connotation. I dare say not one of us would willingly raise our hands if someone were to ask, Okay, who wants to suffer today? Anyone? Anyone? No, no thank you, every time. Here Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings. Really? Really, Paul? It sometimes makes you wonder, is what we're hearing from Paul here a, a humble brag? Do you know about this phenomenon, humble bragging? It's, it's a phenomenon that really has taken off in the advent of social media. You see, you see it everywhere. Here's an example of a humble brag that I found online, the person whom I don't believe to be a celebrity and shall remain nameless, but, it, but it's obviously someone who, who runs around in celebrity circles. They said on, social, on a social media platform, I just stepped on gum. Who spits gum on a red carpet? 
oh, you're on a red carpet, just mentioned ever so nonchalantly. You just happen to be on the red carpet. Humble brag has even made its way into the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. It's defined as to make a seemingly modest, self-critical, or casual statement or reference that is meant to draw attention to one's admirable or impressive qualities or achievements. It would be like me saying, I'm so tired, I'm exhausted, I've spent all day in the orphanage working with the children. You see, it's a cleverly disguised way of bragging. Is this what Paul is doing? I'm suffering, but since I'm suffering for Jesus, I'm glad about it. No. That's precisely what Paul is refuting here. Here's the difference, because Paul is saying, yes, he suffers, but unlike stepping on gum while on the red carpet, Paul is making the point that suffering is for all of us. For all of us. All of us, the church. To be united with Christ, to be part of the body of Christ, is to partake in his sufferings. So he doesn't have the core on the market on suffering for Jesus. We'll all do that. We're all on the red carpet stepping on gum, right? But to, but to be glad about it? Are we really glad about it? Is Paul really glad about suffering to the point that he rejoices? And are we to be glad about suffering when we encounter it? See, I don't, I don't think this is all that unusual. I think all of us are, are wired, in a sense, this way. Paul doesn't have the corner of the market in this category because what's true for all of us is whatever we believe, whatever we believe to be true about our future, has a direct and immediate impact on how we handle our present circumstances. Again, what you believe to be true about your future will have a direct, immediate impact on how you perceive the reality of your present circumstances. Now, I can't say this for sure, but I've been told that carrying around a child in the womb for nine months isn't easy. I've also been told at the end of that nine months, childbirth can be quite painful, in many cases, traumatic. Yet many of you have more than one child. Some of you, knowing all this information, not having a child to this point in your life, would gladly sign up for this without hesitation. Why is that? Because what you believe to be true about your future has a direct and immediate impact on how you handle your present circumstance. And I don't choose the imagery of, of childbirth lightly here. I choose it because Paul uses the same imagery in Romans 8. In, chapter, uh, in that chapter, he says, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And then in verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. In other words, the creation groaned. The creation groaned at what Paul would liken to labor pains as they anticipated the coming of Christ. The coming the coming kingdom which finally arrived. And in the same way, even now, we wait one more time with labor pains, suffering, as we await the final consummation of his kingdom. And though we experience the pain, we see it through the lens of what we know awaits us, the glorious riches. And again, for Paul, it's not just the prospect of seeing this happen, but to see this, this opened up to everyone, not, not just the elite, not just the religious, not to the Israelite, but this is good news for everyone. So he says, I suffer now, so, so be it. If it means that 
I'll be a witness to the glorious riches of what awaits. The thought of suffering dims when held up against the glorious riches of this unfolding mystery. Salvation for, yes, even the Gentile. The weak made strong. The poor made rich. The sick made well. The last made first. This, as Paul says in Ephesians, is the manifold wisdom of God. His kingdom, His church, His people. So as we approach this table, remember this. The body and blood of Christ wasn't just for the elite, for the super-religious, but for everyone with need. Pray with me. Gracious Father, we thank you for the mystery now revealed in Jesus Christ that that by his body and blood he purchased redemption for, for people like us. Those of us who are once far off, now made near, give us strength for the daily battles we face. Help us to remember that, that suffering conforms us to the likeness of your Son. And help us to eagerly anticipate what awaits us, the glorious riches of your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in His name that we pray. For His sake we pray. Amen.